RTHK. State media have declared that COVID is weak and that the people are stronger. That came after Beijing dropped border controls on Sunday in the final easing of its anti-pandemic measures, with editorials saying the mainland has started a new phase in its battle against the virus. Aaron Tam reports. Life is moving forward again, the People's Daily newspaper declared in an article praising the government's virus policies. The editorial, which was published soon after China dropped travel restrictions on Sunday, said authorities have moved from preventing infection to preventing severe disease. The mainland's top health officials and state media have repeatedly said COVID infections are peaking across the country, but the World Health Organization has said it's underreporting the scale of the outbreak, and international health experts estimate more than one million people in the country could die from the disease this year. And tourism officials in Thailand have rolled out the red carpet for the return of visitors from mainland China, hailing the resumption of quarantine-free travel as a major boost to their economy. Three members of the Thai cabinet were at Bangkok's main airport yesterday well, morning to welcome flights. Thailand has also rolled back a vaccination requirement for incoming travellers that had been announced earlier this week. Anutin Chan Virukul is the country's health minister. Now we can say Thailand freely open for all tourists from all over the world, provided that every concerned party will have to be cautious as per the reg- uh, health regulations that stated in Thailand. In addition, the Thai government has said that it's now expecting between 7 and 10 million Chinese tourists this year. That's up from an earlier estimate of 5 million. And you've been listening to the news on RTHK. International station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong. I'm Andrew Work, and we're blasting off on Money Talk. Markets rose around the world yesterday, starting strong in Asia, then Europe, but lost steam in America, where only tech stocks and NASDAQ finished the day on the plus side, while other American indices fell along with the U.S. dollar. Release, release, release. With those words, Virgin Orbit successfully detached the UK's first ever orbital launch from Cosmic Girl, a modified 747. The Start Me Up mission launches a rocket with seven commercial payloads, a first from British soil. We'll put a link to the launch video and info in our Facebook page posting for today right after the show. Goldman Sachs is talking up a bullish future in M&A later this year, but is still planning on laying off about 3,200 people starting this week, mostly in iBanking. So good times in six months. Hand out those pink slips. I guess those unemployed iBankers can find jobs in Europe as unemployment numbers are holding steady at their lowest level since 1998. Le Chômage stands at pat at 6.5%, but is expected to rise to 7% by the middle of the year. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida is on a G7 tour visiting the UK, France, Italy, the USA and Canada. Sorry, Germany, maybe next time. Sales of next-generation fighter jets by Japan and imports of missile interceptor tech and long-range cruise missiles will join supply chain and economic security issues on the menu. And know thy audience. Money talkers will be glad to know that Cathay Pacific's lounges are back in business with the wing first and the pure business noodle bars back in action. 
However, you're going to have to wait a little longer before the pier first and the deck open again. Patience, my young Padawans. And we have three market Jedis of the highest order to join us on today's show. They are James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer Overseas at Lead Securities. In our studio in Admiralty, we welcome Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions uh, with Manulife Investment Management Hong Kong. And Lightsabers Up with a view from Japan is John Byrne, the Vice Chair of Research at the Asia Development Bank Institute. Uh, get our serious space launch links from our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, and our Twitter at Money Talk Radio 3. And it's time to release, release, release on Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Okay, it's market time on Money Talk. Uh, U.S. stocks took the punch bowl away at the end of the global party uh, with the Dow down 0.3% as the S&P shed 0.1%. But tech shares were up with NASDAQ rising 0.6% led by beleaguered Tesla. Tesla, char- Tesla charged its rundown batteries as it rose from almost 6% from Friday's close. This comes even in the wake of announcements that it was slashing prices again, this time in China, where recent buyers showed up at showrooms to protest and demand rebates to match the recent pipe price cuts. The S&P TSX index rose 0.21% with energy tech and base metal stocks leading the way. Canaccord Genuity announced plans to take the company private. Those plans still to be confirmed by the board. Vancouver fashion brand Lululemon took a beating on lower than expected results in the holiday shopping season, dropping 9.3%. The TMX, aka the Toronto Montreal Exchange, agreed to buy 21% of Vetify Holdings for $234 million. It joins the board of the US-based data and analytics firm immediately. Europe is fielding its oats uh, yesterday as the Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose 0.9%. Tech stock indices were up 3.4% and travel and leisure stocks rose 2.5% as expectations of inbound Chinese tourism rose. The DAX was the top national champion, rising 1.25% compared to the French, Italian, and British main indices all up less than 1%. The top performer in Europe yesterday was Atos SE, a French digital transformation company up almost 8% yesterday. Cosby continued to lead the Asian bourses, picking up 2.6% yesterday. Once again, the top of the pops for Asia. The local Hang Seng Index picked up 1.9%, with tech stocks including Baidu, NetEase, and Tencent all performing well. Alibaba beat them all, gaining 8.7% yesterday, as news of Jack Ma's defenestration seems to have, from, from Ant Financial seems to have removed some market uncertainty and cleared the way to open some sesames for Alibaba and its subsidiaries to move forward. Looking north, the Nikkei 225 and Shanghai Composite were both up only 0.6%. Liquid resources were up while the hard stuff was a mixed bag. Brent, WTI, WTI and U.S. heating oil were all up over a percent, but Arbob gas to fill American cars was leading up 2.4%. Natural gas popped up over 6%. Gold was up 0.3%, but copper jumped 2.4% to hit a six-month high on both the New York COMEX and the London Metal Exchange. U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yields shaved a tiny slice off compared to their major Asian and European counterparts, which all gained slightly. Bond watchers will have a keen eye on Thursday's consumer price index to see where the Fed ends up uh, and where the Fed may be headed 
on interest rates. Uh, currencies, the U.S. dollar is down, and the euro is up like a Pixar flick, gaining 0.9% for 6, 6% to hit its highest level since June after an even bigger jump on Friday. Sterling, likewise, has had a sterling run since Friday, up another 0.87%. Uh, the greenback lost almost 1% against the Chinese yuan as the Aussie dollar and Kiwi buck also performed well. Bitcoin is up 1.3% in 24-hour trading and Ethereum an impressive 3.8%. Uh, we're having a look around the region. Uh, the Australian stock exchange has started off down a little bit and our Hong Kong futures index uh, is not looking great, uh, showing a potential 0.2% loss. But we'll take it. And uh, let's get ready for our guests on Money Talk. All right, welcome back. Uh, market analysis today, courtesy of our main guests, starting with James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer overseas with Lead Securities. Good morning, James. Good morning. Good morning. In our studio in Admiralty, we welcome Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions, Manulife Investment Management Hong Kong. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Uh, Mark, I, uh, all my all my CNBC news that I was checking out today, they had ads for some conference you got coming up. You guys are you guys are all over the place right now. I think we've always been all over the place. We've got a great footprint in Asia, and we're looking to reach out to people, both clients and prospective clients, and general interest parties this year. It's going to be another interesting year in markets, we think. All right. Uh, I believe that. It certainly started off interesting. Uh, you know, we had a big Friday rally that carried over into Monday. Uh, market openings in Asia and Europe were up, but it kind of lost steam yesterday towards the end of Monday, um, you know, kind of when, when, when the action finished up in the U.S. Uh, what was going on yesterday? Was it opportunity buying? Is there a genuine, a persistent expectation that the Fed is going to go all, you know, dovey-lovey on us? Or are we just in a season of unpredictable animal spirits and we're going to have to ride a roller coaster? Um, guys, where, where are we going on this? Mark? Yeah, I think that if you look at the data that came out in the US on Friday, it was quite benign in terms of the implications for inflation. So the jobs data was broadly in line in terms of numbers, but the wage growth came in slightly below expectations and there was a prior month revision downwards. And then you had the ISM services number, which came in light. And so the market's conclusion was that maybe we can start to believe that we're through the worst of inflation. And, and at some point down the line this year, the Fed will be in a position to pause on rate hikes at the very least. But there's a cautionary note here is that a lot of the inflation that's been generated has been supply side driven. And we potentially have, with China's reopening and pivoting towards a policy around growth, um, another pulse of inflation pressure coming from commodities and energy. So it's not necessarily going to be a straight line down. There's going to be some whipsawing and zigzagging effects. Are there going to be some supply chain disruptions? Because you need to talk about, OK, if China gets its manufacturing back online, you know, that'll increase demand for natural resources. But um, things are a little bit choppy there right now. I mean, if I was running a factory in China, I think I'd want to wait and see if my my labor situation, COVID, settled down. I mean, do you think the demand's going to be there if they don't quite know where things are going? I mean, you have to look at things on a, on a local basis. If you look at Zhengzhou, which is where the, the biggest iPhone manufacturing plant is, the Foxconn are saying that close to 90% of, of workers are now back working. So that's a sign that there's normalization returned. It's going to be patchy. It's going to be lumpy. But generally speaking, after this very acute wave of, of the spread of the virus, at some point it will peak and people will effectively be able to get back to normal daily life. So I think in terms of acute supply chain disruptions, we'll probably see that fade. But then there's a long 
longer-term question mark around the effects of deglobalization and reshoring of, of manufacturing. That's disruptive and will lead to step changes in prices in certain product categories. Yeah, James, what's your take? Yeah, I think uh, inflation is not going down anytime soon, and uh, I think Bostic made it clear. So people asked him uh, last night, how long do you think uh, the Fed is going to be holding up the uh, interest rate, the terminal rate, probably above 5%, and Bostic said we're just going to have to hold our resolve. And when the people when people ask him for how long, he said three words, a long time. So I think that's the, the, the majority of the, the FOMC members' take on inflation. I think Fed has got some leading indicators that the general public does not have. And uh, they, you can see from a, a whole bunch of uh, FOMC voting members or non-voting members or retired members telling us that uh, the inflation is not going down anytime soon. And, and that's probably why we saw a very excited market last Friday, because uh, they saw some uh, improvements on service price. And if we were looking at the uh, Fed minutes, the latest Fed minutes, uh, you can see uh, the uh, core good price uh, probably will peak this year. Uh, the core housing service price uh, is already peaking. And uh, the only thing that is still on the rise is the core service price, which is directly tied to the nominal wage growth. So that's why when people saw, okay, there is uh, probably a break in wage growth, they got excited. And then I think uh, yesterday, I mean, for the, the U.S. bidding tension that just ended, for the second part of it, people were reminded or or remembered that uh, uh, Jay Powell is going to speak tomorrow. And uh, he's, I, I, in my opinion, he's going to be hawkish, very hawkish, like uh, like Bostic, like uh, Mary Daly, who said the uh, terminal rate of 5% or above is going to last for about 11 months, uh, like, uh, like the uh, second half of uh, James Buller, last Friday. So I think market is a little scared. Mm, and, and uh, you know, when you say hawkish uh, for, for Powell, do you mean like 0.5 hawkish or 0.75 hawkish or? Uh, you mean the uh, raising interest rates? Yeah, I think I think it's pretty sad. It's going to be a, a 25 base point raise for February and for March. And uh, if we look at the Fed watch tool for, for May and June, it's basically inconclusive. So the market is betting again that Fed is not going to raise uh, rate that high uh, in an econ- economic ser- uh, situation like this. And uh, it reminds me of the, the, the situation back in uh, July and August and, again, from early October to early December. And both in, the, in both of those times, the uh, market is betting against the Fed and then the uh, puke gains and surrender. So that's... Hmm. And, you know, you know, we, we uh, Mark mentioned onshoring uh, factors earlier. Right now, uh, Justin Trudeau and, and President Biden are down in Mexico City having a visit with uh, President Obrador. Um, uh, you know, I've heard some people suggesting that onshoring to North America may progress under the aegis of, you know, the USMC, the former formerly known as NAFTA. But I mean, Mexico's a bit of a mess right now, isn't it? I mean, is that I mean, if China gets their act together before anybody can make a real move on investment in Mexico, do, do either one of you see 
some of that North America onshoring happening, or is, or is Mexico just not in a position to capitalize on its, on its cheaper labor? I don't think any corporate's going to tell you that uh, reshoring or diversifying their supply chains is, is an easy task. Um, the reason why China has, has succeeded so much in becoming the global manufacturing hub over the last two to three decades is, is infrastructure, as well as historically um, effective cost of labor. That's, that's gone away as an advantage, but it still has that infrastructure and stability of political system. Mexico, you're right to point out that it's a more politically volatile state, but it does have the benefits of having uh, linkages, both physical and also cultural, with, with North America. And so Mexico is in an advantageous position to capture some of that market share, as are some Southeast Asian countries, such as Vietnam. And those advantages are somewhat different. But one thing that you can observe is that if you take Apple as an example, uh, they're looking to India as a potential destination for some of that uh, production of iPhones and, and, and tablets as well. But it's going to take multiple years to get anywhere meaningful in terms of share of production. Uh, but it makes sense, given the disruptions from COVID, to diversify your footprint and not be totally reliant on any country, whether that's China or somewhere else. Yeah. Alex, what do you think? Uh, you know, if, if people are trying to diversify their supply chains away from China, are they going to go to Eastern Europe? Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm not, I don't think Mexico's got it. Maybe you do. Or, or, or Southeast Asia, India. What's your take? J Sorry, James, you there? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah I, we've been talking with uh, with uh, uh, quite some factory owners in China, and they got their uh, uh, their demand from overseas markets, mostly from Europe and, and Europe and the states. And uh, they told us some of their clients require them to have a backup plan or a uh, subsidiary factory uh, located in Southeast Asia before they place their orders. So I think uh, uh, it's pretty uh, clear that a lot of the uh, retailers uh, want the manufacturing, uh, want the supply chain diversified to Southeast Asia. Right. And when they say Southeast Asia, do they mean Vietnam or are there other places that are, that are considered viable options as well? Yeah, Vietnam, Indonesia are the two most common destinations that uh, the, uh, the suppliers, uh, the uh, retailers want the suppliers to have uh, operations. Yeah, and, and how about you, Mark? What do you, what do you figure? Is that, where are your top picks for for off? You know, get it, having a backup to China manufacturing. Yeah, I would concur with with the likes of Vietnam and Indonesia. You know, highly populous, relatively young populations, but also um, governments that, generally speaking, have navigated economic cycles quite well in the last ten to fifteen years. And then, if you look further afield, perhaps the potential for Eastern European countries in in certain technology sectors, software development, for example, to to gain traction, and then. You come back to, to Mexico as well, I think that's probably going to be something which is slightly more industrial based, given that, that suppliers and, and input providers have already set up footprints there, whether it's in technology or, or automotive manufacturing. Mm, okay, and uh, we mentioned tech. Tech was kind of saved the day yesterday for the United States from, uh, from you know, what could have been a down day after, after such a good day in the markets for Asia and Europe. Uh, can I get your guys' quick, quick take on tech before we uh, turn you loose? Mark, you want to kick off? Where, where are you feeling about tech stocks now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you look under the hood of the market last year, there was a lot of damage done for some of these speculative growth stocks and also the large cap growth companies were also hit very hard. It's really going to, in the short term, come down to what earnings season looks like, both in terms of the Q4 results, but also the guidance and the tone from management. I think there you probably have to take a company-specific approach. Mm. All eyes will be on Apple. Um, I think that the bar in terms of the psychology of the market has been lowered going into these results, particularly given the COVID dynamics in China. 
Um, but I think that the demand side, it's a little bit less clear about whether that's taken here. It's perhaps more the supply disruption, but that could be made up in successive quarters. I think the reason why Amazon rallied yesterday was there was a sense that I think a broker wrote that the cost pressures that it was feeling uh, are starting to cool down. But there's a bigger question for Amazon is that like a lot of companies during COVID, the offline to online shift, they saw outsized revenue growth for several quarters. And there's a sense that some of that's been given back now as consumers return to normal spending patterns going out to shopping malls and so on. So how much of that effect and that reversal has already played out as there's still more to go? That's the big question. All right, James, we're going to give you the final word, your take on tech. Yeah, I think uh, tech has suffered from the downward EPS growth like no other sectors. Uh, downward EPS revision like no other sectors in 2022. And uh, if there is a bottom coming up for the U.S. equity, uh, tech is going to be the first to bounce back. And uh, for uh, I agree with Mark. We're going to take a uh, bottom-up approach when analyzing tech. And uh, Tesla is one of our uh, biggest holdings in equities. And uh, we, we don't see there's any fundamental changes for Tesla when it is hitting 100. And uh, if, if you're looking at the uh, cash pile, it's about three times as much as what it had, what it had back in 2019. Okay. The only reason that we, we can see it, <clears throat> we saw Tesla was uh, plunging, uh, was because of the options market, the, uh, the extremely uh, biased option, option market. And I think that's not a long-term factor. Okay, well, you probably breathed a sigh of relief yesterday with your Tesla holdings. Uh, thank you very much. That's James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer overseas for Lead Securities. And we also had Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions from Manulife Investment Management Hong Kong here on Money Talk. All right, we're back on Money Talk. Uh, John Barron, the Vice Chair of Research with the Asian Development Bank Institute, is joining us for The View on Japan. Good morning, John. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Uh, okay, uh, get you on a little bit late. That's totally my fault. But I want to hear from you definitely what's going on in the Japanese economy. Give us the, the, the big picture first. Well, toward the end of uh, 2022, we saw some stabilization in developments with the yen. Um, as you probably are well aware, uh, the yen has faced extreme pressure during 2022, um, depreciating very sharply against the dollar, um, uh, largely due to uh, interest rate differentials between the U.S. and Japan. Now, what happened towards the end of the year is that we saw some reversion in this depreciation and indeed some stabilization towards the end of uh, the year, which has continued into this year. Um, all eyes are on how inflation will develop in the course of 2023 and that, what that means for monetary policy. Um, so I think that's the main uh, sort of uh, focus of attention from, from the macro side, as well as how the domestic economy will react in terms of domestic demand. I think domestic demand is going to be the main driver for 2022, for 2023, both on, on the uh, consumer side as well as investment, because, of course, monetary conditions still remain uh, very accommodative. On the external side, there remains a lot of uncertainty, and this will obviously um, reduce the extent to which exporters can can uh, contribute to economic growth uh, during the course of the year. Wow! So you're you're actually quite you sound like you're quite bullish on Japanese uh, consumer spending. Why are, why are Japanese consumers feeling so perky? Well, I mean, there are a number of uh, factors for this. Japan has been quite slow to open up from the pandemic, and there's a lot of um, 
savings built up as a result of that. So we do expect to see some unwinding of, of pent-up demand, uh, which will materialise during 2023. As I said, uh, monetary conditions still remain uh, very accommodative. Fiscal policy has been uh, expansionary, uh, sorry, um, very supportive of, of growth, um, basically to alleviate some of the pressures that we, we saw on, on prices during the year. So all of these factors will, will uh, you know, come together to, to contribute to, a, to an increasing uh, growth scenario on the domestic side, as well as that, of course, the tourism has opened up um, and an inflow of, of uh, tourists uh, during uh, 2023 will help to uh, contribute to growth as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm part of that. I'm looking at booking a conference in uh, Japan in September and thinking about when, when I want to put my money down, depending on, on where the yen is going. Um, but, the, you know, one of the other big news stories that we're going to be following, uh, you know, for Japan this week, of course, is the uh, Prime Minister Kishida's trip. Uh, he's doing a bit, of a, uh, a bit of a G7 tour, hitting the UK, France, Italy, USA, Canada. Um, it sounds like a lot of it's uh, military uh, oriented. Uh, Japan's looking, going to be looking to sell some next generation fighter jets to Britain. Italy, uh, and some other things. I mean, what's your take on that trip and some of the outcomes that we might look for that might impact the markets this week, like defense stocks or other things? Yeah, well, I mean, the background to the trip is obviously that, you know, Japan assumes the G7 presidency for 2023, and uh, the, the Kishida-san will visit uh, the other G7 nations, essentially, to bolster solidarity um, with these nations on a range of issues um, which have become problematic on, from a policy perspective uh, during 2022, uh, notably on how, how we can um, address ensuring uh, resilience in global supply chains, um, including related to uh, diversifying supply uh, on energy. National security, of course, is, a, is another factor which is going to be um, part of the discussions that will be taking place. Um, rising geopolitical tensions during the course of 2022, of course, have heightened uh, interest in ensuring a, um, a solid solidarity on, on, on national security and uh, basically a, an improvement or modernization in the extent to which economies can um, feel secure with their national security, including on cybersecurity. Um, so all of these issues really have come to the fore in 2022 and um, issues around, you know, reinvigorating efforts towards uh, a green and inclusive type of uh, sustainable development scenario, mm. as well as ensuring resilience in global supply chains um, oh, and super ensuring um, national security will be key factors um, during 2023. And that's really what this visit is about, I think. All right. Well, we'll have to get you back on the show uh, again to look at look at the outcomes of that trip and some other uh, factors that we talked about today. Thank you very much to John Beeren, Vice Chair of Research Asian Development Bank Institute here on Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Okay, quick look at the markets. Uh, Australian uh, ASX 200 is down right now, but the Nikkei and the Kospi are up uh, looking good, as are Bitcoin and Ethereum in current trading. Uh, stay tuned. We got back chat coming up with Janice Wong and Ada Wong. It's a double Wong, a Wong squared. Uh, tomorrow we got Money Talk uh, again. We're going to have Patrick Bennett from CIBC, Sean Debo, uh, Canadian from Horizon Capital Asia, 
and Barry Wood, RTHK's international economic correspondent. As always, I want to thank our producer, Christy Lai, and today's sound man is Andy Kwok of the famous uh, Sexy Silver Hair. Um, we'd also uh, like to remind you today that you've been listening to Money Talk, and it is time to release, release, release. <laughs> Uh, 19 degrees Celsius, 91% humidity. The time is 8.30 and now the news with Barry O'Rourke. A former Macau legislator says inbound tourism has reached pre-pandemic levels after the SAR dropped all travel restrictions on Sunday. Agnes Lam, a University of Macau associate professor, said people were happy they no longer had to use a health code or report COVID cases and felt more confident about the state of the economy. The past weekend, we kind of reached the level of the daily number of the tourists reached level of the pre-pandemic year, that's 2019. And so there was one day, I think the Sunday, and then it reached like 70,000. And also before that, uh, one week before that, before we released all of the restrictions, it already increased to 20,000 per day. So it's the biggest number of the past three years. And so people here are now obviously more happy and then they feel more confident about the economy. Officials in Brazil say at least 1,500 people have been arrested following the storming of the Congress building in Brasilia on Sunday by thousands of supporters of the former president Jair Bolsonaro. President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who was sworn in last week, has returned to work in the presidential palace, which was also ransacked. Brazil's ambassador to the United Nations, Ronaldo Costa Fio, said his country and its people would not be defeated by what he called Sunday's lamentable incidents. We are grateful to the messages of support and solidarity we have received from around the world, including from Secretary General Antonio Guterres. We are confident that the strength of Brazilian institutions will allow us to overcome these violent and lamentable incidents of yesterday and allow us to move forward within the strength of our democratic institutions. The Pakistani Prime Minister, Shehbaz Sharif, has urged the International Monetary Fund to agree to a pause in its demand for economic reforms before releasing more financial aid. Mr Sharif said Islamabad needed some breathing space as it tackled the impact of last year's devastating floods. His foreign minister, Bilawal Bhutto Zadari, also says Pakistan needs to be given more time. The challenges that the floods, the scale of the flooding, the scale of the devastation have knocked us off our centre. Uh, it does mean we'll need a little bit more time to be able to get where we want to be as far as the economic uh, recovery is concerned. The IMF is yet to approve the release of 1.1 billion US dollars emergency loan originally due to be dispersed late last year. A court in the Czech Republic has cleared the country's former Prime Minister, Andrej Babish, of European Union subsidy fraud in a case which has dogged his political career. It comes days before presidential elections in which he's standing. A judge said there was insufficient evidence to prove Mr Babish and a former associate had fraudulently obtained more than two billion US dollars worth of EU small business funds to build a resort and conference centre outside Prague several years before he entered politics. Mr. Babish said the case was politically motivated. Of course, I'm very happy. I'm especially happy for my family, my closest colleagues and the people who were supporting me. And I think it's good news for the whole of the Czech Republic and its citizens that we live in a state governed by the rule of law and that we have an independent judiciary. 
A report co-produced by the UN, US and EU says that human action to save the ozone layer appears to have worked and that it should fully recover within decades. The ozone layer began depleting in the 1970s and gaping holes were confirmed in 1985. Two years later, 46 countries banned, signed up to the Montreal Protocol banning harmful chemicals thought to be causing the damage. And doctors who've been treating the Buffalo Bills American football star, Damar Hamlin, say he's been allowed to move closer to home more than a week after collapsing on the field during a game in Cincinnati against the Bengals. He left University of Cincinnati Medical Center and flew to Buffalo, where he'll be treated in another hospital. Hamlin regained consciousness on Wednesday 